The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, what I want to do today is uh, kind of my, my annual tradition uh, is the first Sunday of the year that I preach. Of course, I wasn't here last week. Uh, is to introduce our theme uh, for the coming year. And so uh, you can see on the screen that our theme for 2023 that we've chosen is transforming faith. And so I want you, as we begin today, to just consider for yourself, how does my faith transform the way I live? Or, Or to put it another way, how would your life be different if faith was removed from the equation. Now, I think ultimately, you know, probably for most of us, we we tend to immediately jump to everything that's wrong when we hear those questions, but I think it's probably good to begin by recognizing all that is right, right? Because if you are a Christian, whether you always see it or not, your faith has radically transformed the course of your life. You're in church this morning instead of being in bed or at the beach. You know, and, and, and obedience to Christ, your, your desire to honor the Lord and, and fulfill His will, it, it probably affects the rhythms of your life, your, your daily processes, more than you sometimes recognize. You give a portion of your income to the work of the Great Commission, to the church, instead of spending it on yourself. And, and on and on we could go with all the ways that faith has transformed the way you live on a daily basis. But of course, for probably most of us, if not all of us, when we think about how does my faith transform my life, that there's also in us a holy discontentment, that my faith does not always make the difference that it should. You know, we know that that at times we're slaves to fear. We love the world more than we love the Lord, and we pursue the approval of people over the approval of God. And oftentimes, I think as Americans, living by faith is is challenging because we enjoy such abundance. And and so we look at our lives and, and we feel like my life is pretty secure. And I have the power to make it secure. And if anything comes up in my life that's a problem, as Americans, we feel like we've got the strength to, to, to pull up our bootstraps and we can solve it. We can pay for it. We can fix it. And so oftentimes, there's not much room left for us to really depend on the Lord. You know, Jesus prayed in the, in the, in, uh, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And most of us never wake up in the morning wondering where my daily bread is going to come from. And so, really trusting the Lord for just daily necessities oftentimes is difficult for us to do. So, so we all need a more transforming faith. And so I'd like to introduce the theme, our theme for this year, by going to the preeminent discussion of faith in, in Hebrews chapter 11. And I want to look specifically today at verse 1 and then verses 24 through 26. So let's go ahead and read those verses. So Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then jump down to verse 24. It says, 
By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture. We, we oftentimes call Hebrews 11 the hall of faith. And so many of us are familiar with this chapter, but it's important that, that we step back and read this chapter within its historical and, and, and literary context. So specifically, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jews who had received Christ as Savior, and because they had abandoned Judaism for Christianity, Judaism was a legal religion in Rome. Christianity was not. And so by becoming Christians, they had stepped outside the security of Judaism, and these people were enduring persecution and hardship for their faith. In fact, jump up to chapter 10 and notice uh, what is said in verses 32 to 34. The author says to these believers, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, and that's talking there about their conversion, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being, excuse me, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So, so their faith was not just talk, was it? It had made a, a radical difference in their life. I mean, think about, think about joyfully accepting the seizure of your property. That is huge. But recently, we learn in the book of Hebrews that some of the believers in this church had grown weary of suffering, and they were considering abandoning Christ and going back to the security of Judaism. And as a result, the author encourages them throughout the book of Hebrews to build and maintain an enduring faith. In fact, notice what he goes on to say at the end of chapter 10, verse 35. He says, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a, little, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So, so he tells them there, and he tells them throughout the book, not to be intimidated by the world's hostility. No, instead, they must believe that God's eternal rewards are worth any sacrifice that, that may be required to follow Christ. And with that confidence, with faith in God's promise, they are to endure. And chapter 11 follows that up by, by describing this kind of enduring faith. That's the purpose of the chapter. And it does so through a number of Old Testament examples of, of people who walked by faith and trusted the Lord contrary to, to what circumstances would have said was wise. And he, and he gives all these examples to, to tell these believers, first of all, that you're not alone. 
You know, Satan wants you to believe when you are suffering that you are the only person who's ever been there. And so all these examples tell them that they are not alone, that, that others have been where you have been. And, and not only that, others have thrived. They've served God. They've been faithful through hardship. And just like all these Old Testament saints endured by faith, he's saying to these believers, you can do it too. And God is saying to us, so can you. You can walk with a radically transformative faith. I mean, you can, by God's grace, nurture and develop, cultivate a transforming faith that leads to an exceedingly great reward. And this morning, I want to consider the author's description of that kind of faith in verse 1, and then in verses 24 through 26, see my favorite example of that in chapter 11. So, so let's look, first of all, in verse 1 at the description of transforming faith. So again, he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, I do want to just note that this is not intended to be an exhaustive definition of faith. All right, there, there's more, a whole lot more that could be said about what faith is. No. No, no, the point of this verse is to celebrate specifically the impact that faith has on how I see the world and on how I make decisions. And it makes that point through two similar phrases, right? It is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So, so let's talk first about the arena of faith. Where does faith operate? Well, first of all, he tells us that faith operates in the realm of things hoped for. Now, in context, this phrase is not talking about just wishful thinking. No, no, it's talking specifically about the joys of heaven which God has promised to those who are in Christ. And, of course, the Bible teaches that, that God's eternal rewards, that they really are a, a driving force in the life of the Christian. Now, God has unimaginable glory, unimaginable rewards awaiting his people in heaven. And so we endure, we sacrifice, we obey the Lord, we serve the Lord, all because we believe at the end of it all, Christ will make it worth it in glory. There's, there's not enough blessing in this life to make the Christian life make sense. It makes sense because by faith we believe in what is coming on the other side. But of course, the obvious challenge with living for an eternal reward is that we can't see those things or experience those things today. They're not present realities, they're future ones. That's why he says there as well, they are things not seen. We, we can't see them. You know, we, none of us here have seen heaven. None of us have experienced the glories of heaven. We, we can't fully comprehend it. Of course, none of us have seen Jesus either. Now, maybe you think you have, but I don't think so. None of us have seen Jesus. None of us heard him teach. None of us saw him perform miracles. None of us saw him raised from the dead. Now, now I must be clear that that does not mean that, that our faith in these things is just, uh, again, a, a wishful thinking. You know, faith is not 
A blind biblical faith is not a blind leap of faith. You know, I, I want these things to be true, and, and so if I just believe in them enough, maybe they'll be there. You know, it's not, faith, biblical faith is not an escape from reality. The world is harsh and terrible, so I tell myself, you know, that these things are real, like a little kid tells himself that Santa Claus is real. That's not what biblical faith is. No. I mean, there are plenty of historical, uh, rational, scientific reasons why, why we can look at the Bible and, and believe that this word is the truth of God. So, so the reason people do not believe this book is not because they, they, they rationed it out, they thought it out, and came to a logical conclusion. The reason people don't believe this book is the depravity of their own hearts. So, so, so that's the reality of it all. But, but, but while that is so, the, so the point here is not that, that faith is irrational, but simply that faith is based on future promises that we cannot see today. And, and it is hard to live on something that you haven't seen yet. Now, just look over it at verse 7. I think this verse is helpful context. Verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, and there's our phrase, not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Now, when we think of Noah, God spoke to him. Do you think if God spoke to you audibly that, that you would... You know, that, that'd be easy to believe, right? So, so Noah had plenty of reason to believe that, that God really was going to flood the world and that he was going to save him with the ark. But the reality is, is that Noah had never seen rain, much less a worldwide flood. So do you think that there were days over the course of 120 years where, where Noah wondered, what am I doing? Why am I building this massive boat? Of course he did. But, but, but Noah here, what, what he did was he believed God. He, he trusted God. And, 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 and folks, you know, the same is true for us. You know, that, that God at times calls us to walk by faith in ways that are very difficult. He calls us to give sacrificially. He calls us to speak the truth and share the gospel with people who are often hostile to his truth. He calls us to endure difficult relationships that that give us nothing for ourselves simply because it is right. And and on and on we could go with all the ways that living by faith is difficult. It's a lot. And and oftentimes, there is no immediate reason why the the life of faith is worth it. So why do Christians continue to walk by faith? Well, the simple answer is the transforming impact that our faith has. So, so verse 1 again says that faith is assurance and conviction. Now, now I do need to mention that, that those two Greek words, the two Greek words that stand behind those are, are words that have a, a fairly broad range of meaning. And so the, the specific nuance that they have is, is based on the context. And so I actually like the alternate translations in the NASB footnotes better than what we have here. So if you're looking at a NASB and probably most other translations, there's a number next to each of these words in your text. And then if you look in the cross-reference, there's an alternate translation. So, so the NASB has as an alternate for assurance, substance. 
and as an alternate for conviction, evidence. And I like those better because, because once again, biblical faith is, is, is not just wishful thinking. It's not just an escape from reality. It's not a blind leap in the dark. You know, faith is not a mental crutch for weak people. It's not just simply a burning in the bosom. You know, just a, a feeling like God is there. No. And the Bible says that creation declares the glory of God. And Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible is God's word. It is his speech to him. So, so biblical faith is reasonable. Now, our faith does not begin with, with a feeling that God is there. It begins in the mind. But of course, genuine faith doesn't just stay in the mind. It, it, you know, and it's not just merely assent to a creed. You know, you know, biblical faith is not just reading through the church's doctrinal statement and saying, sure, I believe that. No. Biblical faith works down to my affections, to how I view the world, and ultimately to the choices that I make. It is transformative. And, 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 and what God is saying in this verse is that genuine spirit-empowered faith gives assurance, or better, you could say, substance to the promises of God. So, so what does he mean by that? Well, well again, we, we can't physically see heaven and all that it offers. But that's okay, because faith takes the place of sight. It, it makes within my heart that which is invisible tangible to me. It is real to me just as much as this building is real to me. And therefore, it doesn't just radically change our minds, it radically changes everything about me. And as well, he says, that faith gives conviction. Or, or you could say it acts as evidence of things we have never seen. I like how William Lane puts it. He, he says of this word, he says, faith demonstrates the existence of reality that cannot be perceived through objective sense perception. Faith confers upon what we do not see the full certainty of proof or demonstration. It furnishes evidence concerning that which has not been seen. And that's good. Because for a person of strong faith, heaven is not just a distant dream. It's not the North Pole. No, it is real. It is true. And it's a reality that transforms everything about my life. You know, the gospel is not just a cute story for kids. It is the power of God to my salvation. And it gives me rest, hope, confidence, and love. So I wonder, do you live with that kind of faith? And I'm not just asking, do you, do you profess to believe in Christ? Would you say, if we looked at the doctrinal statement of the church, sure, I believe those things. I'm asking, what difference does faith make in your day-to-day -day life? Does the fear of man rule your life or the fear of God? You know, what rules your bank account? Is it ruled by eternal promises, the Great Commission, and Caring for people and fulfilling biblical responsibilities? Or is it selfishness and materialism? 
And when you're faced with a scary challenge, a, a, an unknown trial for the future, you know, do you uh, quickly uh, compromise your convictions and seek to solve it yourself? Or do you continue to obey the Lord and trust that he can solve your problems in a way that you never can? Folks, every Christian is to cultivate that sort of life-transforming faith in the truths and the promises of God. But while that is God's will for us, God's desire for us, God also understands that our faith is oftentimes weak and we fall short of these ideals. I mean, he even inspired the author of Hebrews to write this book for people who had weak faith, right? These people are considering abandoning Christ. And so he writes this book to encourage people whose faith is weak. And and, and what's so fascinating about the book of Hebrews is that God doesn't just berate these people or abandon them. No. I mean, he spends 13 chapters in the book of Hebrews explaining to them, you know, very carefully and, and thoroughly why it is that they should hold on to Christ. He gives rational, biblical, sound reasons to them why they should continue to believe and obey. And and he does it all with compassion and grace, but also with tremendous urgency. Because this is a matter of eternal consequence. And so if your faith is weak, or maybe you don't have any faith at all, you don't believe what this word says, then don't be discouraged and, and don't quit. You know, don't imagine God you know, up in heaven just fuming at you, ready to squash you like a fly. No. You run to God in the means of grace that God's provided. You know, I think it's important to say that the way you grow, you, you know, strong faith is not something you just sit and like wait for God to zap you with it. Like, boom, I've got faith like Moses. No. You cultivate faith by by living in God's Word, by obeying God and watching God bless, by living in dependence on Him in prayer, by fellowshipping with God's people. So so use the means of grace that God has provided to cultivate a strong faith. And if you have questions about what the Scriptures say and, and whether or not they're true or how it all fits together, then ask godly people who can give you answers. It is so hypocritical when when people will will declare, well, it's all a bunch of nonsense. And they've never actually taken the time to talk to godly people and listen to rational, reasonable, biblical answers as to why this word is true. So so we would love to, to sit down with you and talk about your questions, answer them, help you understand the scriptures and how they fit together and help you develop faith in this word that it is true, life-transforming, and satisfying. All of us, by God's grace, can get there. So, so in sum, verse 1 gives us a powerful summary of faith's impact. It is, it is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. And with the rest of our time, I'd like to consider an encouraging example of this faith And it's a story that has strengthened me over and over. In fact, this is a passage that when I was going to public high school, I leaned on this passage more than any other to encourage me and to sustain me as I walked through a lot of challenges. And so verses 24 through 26 provide the example of transforming faith. 
And we read it a little bit ago, and of course this story uh, takes us back to the story of Moses. And again, remember that, that the author of Hebrews, he's writing to a Jewish audience, and so these people would have grown up their whole lives revering Moses. Moses was one of the most you know, revered figures in all of Judaism. And the author here in our text zeroes in on a difficult choice that Moses had to make. And we're going to see that this choice that Moses has to make has some very important parallels uh, to, to the reader's situation and the choice that they were facing. And, and just to give us a little context for this choice, keep your finger here, but turn back to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. And uh, Acts 7 records uh, Stephen's sermon before the Sanhedrin. And then he tells us just a little bit more about this choice that Moses had to make. I'd like to begin reading in verse 21. And it says there, uh, well, let's begin in verse 20. It says, it was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. So, so that passage, uh, again, there tells us that Moses made a very difficult choice, a choice to, to identify with God's people. And, and similarly, verse 24 of our text says that faith oftentimes requires a costly choice. It says in verse 24, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, folks, that is, it's, it's an incredible story, right? So, so remember, again, as these passages say, that, that Moses was born at a time when Pharaoh had decreed that every baby Jewish boy was to be killed immediately when they were born. But, but Moses' parents, uh, they, they didn't want their son to die, and so they hid them for three months in their own home, and then ultimately, because you know, babies get loud, they couldn't hide him there anymore, and so they put him in a basket in the Nile River. And we know the story that in God's providence, Pharaoh's daughter found this basket and found baby Moses inside of it, and, and she raised him as her own son in the royal family. And, and Acts chapter 7 highlights the fact that that radically changed the course of Moses' life. I mean, he went from being a condemned slave who was supposed to die to, to living in the most powerful court on earth at that time. And he had all the privileges of royalty. He had the best education. He had the incredible wealth. He was safe and secure. And he had all the glory of being a part of the royal family. But, but both passages indicate that when Moses was about 40 years old, uh, somehow, and we don't know all the details, God revealed to Moses that he had called him 
to lead the people of Israel out of slavery. And Moses had to make a choice. On one side, there's all the privileges of being a son of Pharaoh. You know, of, of all the wealth, the glory, the safety, the security. But also on that side, the fact that you are living and you are benefiting off the cruel enslavement of the children of God. It's fundamentally a life of, of betrayal of God. So there's that side. And then on the other side, there's slavery. There's the threat of death. There's the hostility of Pharaoh. But there's also a right relationship with God. And the promise that God would use Moses to lead the people out of slavery. And the original audience of the book of Hebrews, they could immediately identify with the struggle that Moses must have faced. Because faithfulness to Christ meant for them potential imprisonment. It had meant that. We just read that in chapter 10. It meant for them poverty. It meant social ostracism. So so there's that on one side. If I'm faithful to Christ, it's going to be costly, but there's eternity to be gained. The other side, if they abandon Christ and return to Judaism, there's safety, there's security, there's a simple life, but ultimately the knowledge that they have rejected the Messiah. So what are they going to do? Well, Moses' story came to a head when he decided to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And, 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 we t- and we learn in, in Exodus and in Acts chapter 7 that, that he goes out to, to visit uh, the people of Israel. And while he's out visiting them, he sees an Egyptian cruelly beating one of the Israelite slaves. And, and you can imagine Moses watching this unfold and thinking about what am I going to do? Because he knows that God has called him to identify with these people. It's his job to lead them out of slavery. But he also knows that if he defends that slave, it's an act of treason against the king. And he's going to lose every benefit that he has in Pharaoh's court, and he is going to face the worst wrath of the king. And and, and think about it. we, We have the benefit of knowing the whole story. But Moses doesn't know the whole story. I mean, he's standing there looking at this Egyptian. He's thinking about what's going on. And what is he going to do? And he knows that if he stands up for this Jewish slave, there is no going back. His life will never be the same. And yet, despite the incredible consequences of defending the Israelite slave, Moses does that. He defends the Israelite slave, and he stands up for him, and he kills the Egyptian And when the Egyptians discover what had happened, this glorious prince suddenly becomes a wanted man. He's committed treason against the king, and he has to flee to the desert as a fugitive. And just imagine the coffee shop talk in Egypt the next day when that came out in the local newspapers. You know, they grab the newspaper, son of Pharaoh, kills a soldier, flees the desert. That guy's nuts! Wait, what got into him? He must be crazy. What a lunatic. Now, what could possibly be worth abandoning the privileges of royalty to identify with a bunch of slaves? What a crazy. And you know, Christian, to, to at least some extent, we, we know the feeling, right? You know the feeling of, of having your coworkers look at you with that strange look when you refuse to participate in their sinful behavior. Like, okay, you're, you're one of those religious wackos. Okay, 
we'll leave you alone. Or you've listened patiently as a coach or a teacher lectures you about how you are ruining your child's life by not putting them in this extracurricular activity that's going to get them a scholarship and, and all these things, and instead you're prioritizing church and worship. You've watched as your friends talk behind your back while you stay in a difficult marriage that the world says, man, you should skip town, get out of there, leave that in the dust, and go have a good life. We've all experienced those things. You know, unbelievers, and sadly, sometimes other Christians will look at the choices of faith and they will say, that is nuts. That is absurd. So why continue to make those choices? Well, the simple answer is that faith transforms our perspective. And verses 25 and 26 make two incredible contrasts between the choices that Moses had before him. So verse 25 said that he could choose between ill treatment with the people of God or, on the other hand, the pleasures of sin. And verse 26 says he could choose between the reproach of Christ or the treasures of Egypt. Now, if you don't have faith, what are you choosing? You're going with letter B every time. The pleasures of sin and the treasures of Egypt. Because that's a simple choice if you don't have the perspective of faith. But faith transformed Moses' perspective, first of all, about worldly pleasures. So, so once again, you know, most people, I mean, they, they, we, we dream of, of having Moses' life, right? I mean, kids grow up, everyone wants to be where Moses was the first 40 years of his life. I mean, he is a prince in the most powerful nation on earth. He has power, he has glory, he is rich, he's got the best clothes, he's got the best food, he's got the nicest home. Now, now kids, you may not think this is that valuable, but Acts 7.22 says that he has received the best education that the world has to offer, and it says that he was a man of power in words and deeds. So, so Moses is not just a freeloader in the court. He is smart, he is articulate, he is set up to be extremely successful. So, so from a worldly standpoint, Moses is living the dream. It doesn't get any better. And yet, the text tells us that faith transformed his perspective. Because faith gave Moses a clear vision of God and God's eternal glory. And because he could see God clearly and see eternity clearly, it transformed how he viewed all the things of this earth. I mean, notice how verse 25 describes all that he had. It calls it the passing pleasures of sin. Now, now I do want to clarify there that, that the point there is not that, that having a good time, enjoying the good things of this world is necessarily sinful. No, the reason that, that his life was, was inherently a problem was because the Egyptian court was profiting off the slavery of God's people. And every day that he continued to live in that court and benefit from the slavery of God's people and to reject God's call on his life to identify with God's people and to lead them out, every day like that was a life of sin. And similarly, any time I love the world over loving God, I'm sinning, regardless of whether or not the thing I'm doing is itself a problem. 
And faith allowed Moses to see that none of it was ultimately worth it. Faith allowed him to see that all these things that, that people, I mean, just give their lives to chasing was just temporary, fading pleasure. And we need that reminder a lot, don't we? Because the world, the flesh, and the devil, they are constantly tugging on our senses. You know, I mean, you, you turn on, you know, commercials. Every commercial is, is intended to make you believe that you cannot live without this thing. And this thing that we're trying to sell you, it will change your life. It will give you so much happiness. It will be worth you know, twice what you have to spend to buy it. And all that is out there and our hearts grab onto all of it. And we're so easily consumed with materialism, comfort, glory, and pleasure. And we have to counter all of it by constantly maintaining a vision of faith that sees everything here from an eternal perspective. Folks, it is all passing away. It's all passing away. I mean, that thing that you are so passionate about getting, that thing that consumes your emotions, it lasts for a short time and it's gone. In comparison to eternity, it is nothing. And, and, and we know that, right? Have you ever gotten super excited about something? Super excited about a vacation, super excited about you know, some dinner or some event or some experience, and, and, and it's awesome. And then you wake up the next morning cranky, irritated, and, and worse than you when, you when you went into it. I mean, yeah, it was great, but now it's over. And you're the same grouchy, cranky person you were beforehand. It's temporary. It doesn't last. Of course, we can look around and see that some of the wealthiest, most successful people in our world, they're, they're not the happiest people. They're consumed with ambition, fear, depression. So, so you know, young people in particular, remember these verses as you plan for your future. And all the stuff that the world tells you, you have to get. All the things that the world tells you will make you so happy and so satisfied. They will not satisfy your heart. They will leave you empty and disappointed every time. So don't give your life to it. By faith, see that sin's pleasures are passing. And from there, let faith transform your perspective on God's eternal rewards. Now, now we're going to get to eternal rewards here in a moment. But, but let's just remember that Moses' path to eternal rewards. Like, we know the end of the story, right? We know that Moses is one of the most famous people that's ever lived. We know that he was successful. We know that he's in heaven, you know, having a great time today. But let's not forget that Moses' path to all of that was very difficult. And it was filled with risk and hardship. Verse 25 says, he chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God. And, and we're not just talking about, you know, woe is me, you know, I've got a little owie. I mean, we're talking about slavery. We're talking about life as a fugitive. And Moses had to endure ill treatment. And so, and so he didn't know how all this was going to turn out. And all he knew for sure when he made that choice to identify with God's people is that he was stepping into tremendous hostility and suffering. But notice in verse 26 
how faith transformed his perspective. He said, it says, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So his faith allowed him to see past the suffering and to clearly see the greater riches of God in Christ. Now, now something else, you know, if you're wondering here, uh, of course, Christ had not yet come. So, so why is he bringing up the reproaches of Christ? So, so Moses couldn't knowingly identify with Jesus. But the Bible consistently teaches that Christ identifies with the suffering of his people. So remember what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So, so when Saul was persecuting the church, he was persecuting Jesus. So, so when Moses joined in the suffering of God's people, he was joining in the sufferings of Christ. Of course, the author is, is urging his readers to also identify with Christ the point of, of that kind of suffering. And God wants us to be ready to do the same. You know, suffering for Christ is not easy, right? It's easy to go along with the flow. It's certainly easier to just live your life for, for what's right in front of your nose. But, but Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 10, that his ambition was that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. You know, the, the, I mean, there is a, um, a nearness that we have to Christ when we suffer with him that we cannot experience any other way. And Christ is worth it. And of course, on the other side of that intimacy with our Savior is the eternal rewards that He offers in heaven. And the Bible promises us that they are worth all of it. You know, so, so when you stand before God someday, and, and you get done with your judgment, you're, you're not going to stand there and think, man, I wish I had been more selfish. What was I thinking? Man, I, I was too kind. I was too loving. Why, why did I obey God so much? You know, why did I invest in the Great Commission? Man, I, I could have had a nice car. I mean, that's not what you're going to think. No, you will rejoice at every sacrifice you made. And your only regret when you stand before the Lord is that you did not invest more of your life in serving Christ. And to drive this home, I want to conclude by telling the story of, of a man whose, whose life parallels that of Moses. And this young man, he lived about 100 years ago, and his name is William Borden. And uh, as a teenager, as a young child, he would be similar to, to any of the teenagers in this room, except for one big difference. William Borden was the heir of the Borden Dairy Company, a company that's still in existence. You can probably go to Stater Brothers and find products uh, that are part of the, of the Borden Dairy Company. And so, and so William Borden was the heir to a fortune, a fortune in the millions a hundred years ago when a million dollars meant a whole lot more than it does today. And so William was set to enjoy the very best that the world had to offer and, and probably to gain even more because he was a very gifted, very bright, very sharp young man who could have done tremendous things with himself. And yet, when William graduated from high school, his parents decided to, his, his graduation gift 
was that they sent him on a trip around the world. I mean, how's that for a graduation gift? You get to travel around the whole world. And so William Borden, he goes off on this trip around the world, and while he's on this trip around the world, he becomes burdened for the spiritual needs of the world. He recognizes that there are low, you know, millions of people, billions of people across the world who have never heard about the good news of the gospel. And so William Borden committed on that trip to become a missionary. And, and so he, after graduation, he enrolled at Yale. Again, he's not living the low life. He's going to Yale. And, and he graduated from Yale. And when he graduated from Yale, he was offered several lucrative jobs. Because again, he's not just wealthy. He was a bright young man. And, and so he's offered these jobs uh, where he could make a ton of money. And um, uh, I got ahead of myself a little bit. So, so while he was in college, you know, and, and he's thinking about his future. I mean, just imagine the thoughts going through this young man's mind. And he wrote in his Bible as he was meditating on one night about what being a missionary meant for his life. He wrote in his Bible, no reserves. And he was not going to, you know, kind of like hedge his bets. You know, hold on to a little bit of, of what the world had to offer. I mean, he said, no reserves. It all belongs to the Lord. And then, uh, I got ahead of myself, he, he graduated from Yale. He was offered these jobs. And, and you can imagine, again, I mean, just I mean, think of the temptation that would be there for a young man to think of all that's out there, all that's available to him. But he declined every job, every opportunity, because he was committed to being a missionary. And he wrote in his Bible underneath, no reserves, he wrote, no retreats. He was not going to quit on what God had called him to do. There was no backing away. And so he did that, and then after he finished uh, his undergrad degree, he went to Princeton, finished a grad degree at Princeton, and then after that, he set sail for Egypt, where he was going to apprentice under an experienced missionary with the ultimate goal of going to a Muslim nation to preach the gospel, which is, you know, if there is like the hardest place you could go, it's to go into Muslim nations to preach the gospel. And so while he went to Egypt, and, but while he was there in Egypt apprenticing under this missionary, he contracted spinal meningitis. And a few weeks later, at the age of 25, William Borden was dead. And he left behind a massive fortune and a whole lot of worldly potential. And his death was known around the world, and it was mourned as a tremendous waste. What a lunatic to give up all of that to go be a missionary and to die. But Borden didn't see it as a waste because he had written in his Bible just shortly before his death, underneath no reserves, no retreats, he wrote no regrets. And what a testimony. Despite everything that he had left behind and despite the hardship of being a missionary, which ultimately killed him, he could say in his final days, no regrets. Because honoring God and living for eternity are more precious than anything that this world has to offer. So what will you say in your final days on earth and when you stand before the Lord? Will you be filled with regret that you invested your life in this world the things of this world, everything that you could achieve, everything you could attain here? 
Or will you say without regret, I invested my life in eternity? Folks, we need to cultivate a radically transformative faith. A radically transformative faith. that, That is filled with a vision of glory in heaven that transforms all of life. And so may God help us in 2023 to cultivate that kind of faith. The faith of Moses, the faith of William Borden, where we see the eternal reward. And it is just as real to us as everything here. And it transforms how we live. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are worthy of all of our lives and all of our service. Lord, your reward is exceedingly great. And you are great. And so, God, I pray that this year you would grow in us a transforming faith that changes everything about us. No, Father, I pray that we would not be intimidated by any sacrifice, any pain, but that, Lord, we would be radically committed to you And Father, that we would rest in you and trust in you and hope in you through every rise and fall of life. So God, I pray that in your grace you would do this in us, that you would make us like the Savior and that you would grow that faith. Lord, I pray uh, for maybe unbelievers who are here that, Lord, you would give them this faith. You would cause them to see the glory of Christ and transform them as well. And so God, help us this week to walk by faith not by sight. In Jesus' name.